Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would open uh, your Bibles, this will be our last week in Galatians. We're going to do Galatians 6. Next week, um, uh, DJ and Stuart have been handing out uh, our uh, quarterlies. We're going to begin, Lord willing, in Genesis chapter 25. We've got some stacked up out there and up here if you didn't get one on the way out. Uh, we ordered triple the large print. <laughs> Yes, those are for people like me that need cataracts, so you know, that's how it goes. <clears throat> well, this is our last week in, uh, in Galatians, and we're going to be uh, spending just some time in the very first five verses of Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 to 5. Now, the context is Paul wrote the book of Galatians to defend, really, the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, which means sinful man is made right with holy God based only and solely on the finished work that Jesus Christ did for us, not the work that we do. We are not saved by works, but by grace. The first two chapters of this book, it's really divided into three chunks. Chapters 1 and 2, Paul is defending his apostolic authority and therefore his authority to present the gospel. Chapters 3 and 4 are really the doctrinal piece of it. We've been through, he, he defines and explains and defends what justification by faith is. And the last two chapters, chapters 5 and 6, really Paul spends more time on practical application. How this truth, this doctrine of justification by faith, applies to everyday life. Remember, application is actually doing what you now know to be true. And in chapter 5, we spent some time there last week, Paul applies justification by faith and he discusses Christian liberty, law, license, and love. And in the last part of that chapter, he discusses the flesh and the spirit. He says, remember, if you are living according to the flesh, we're going to know it because your lifestyle will reflect it. You'll be exhibiting the deeds of the flesh. Conversely, if you're living in the power of the spirit, we will also know that because the fruit of the spirit will be evidence. So external behaviors always reflect internal realities. So you don't generally have to figure out what's going on inside somebody. You can look at their behavior over a period of time and it will become pretty evident what's the controlling factor inside their life. Paul says anybody who submits to the desires of the flesh, of course, is going to exhibit those deeds of the flesh. And he gives you a, a nasty list of those in verses 19 through 21. And of course, we talked last week that there's quite a lot of that in our culture. You see a lot of the deeds of the flesh pretty evident. And then he lists the fruit of the Spirit, the the produce that the Holy Spirit generates in a life that chooses to walk with and submit to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Now in chapter 6, he's going to get really practical and he basically wants to demonstrate how a Spirit-filled believer should practically respond to the daily burdens of a brother or sister in Christ. So let's pick up the parable, the narrative, if you will, in chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, even if one is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Here's the principle. Those walking by the Spirit should exhibit a spirit of gentleness and humility when restoring family members who have been ambushed by sin. Those walking by the Spirit should exhibit a spirit of gentleness and humility when restoring family members who have been ambushed by sin. Paul opens this chapter with the word brethren. He reminds these Galatian believers, and of course us, that they are members of God's forever family. They have been adopted by their Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ's payment for their sins on the cross. And of course, that's true of us as well. We are part of God's forever family. Matter of fact, our spiritual family is designed to be closer than our biological family. You've heard the phrase, blood is thicker than water, right? Proverb. Physical blood may be thicker than water, 
but the blood of Jesus binds us closer together than any shared gene pool. Some of you have experienced that. Our biological family is God's gift to us for planet Earth. It's a design for planet Earth designed to partially portray God's forever family. Our spiritual family does life together forever. Not just here on earth, but for all eternity in heaven as well. So doing life together for manna is not just on planet earth. The reality is if you know Jesus Christ, we get to do life together in heaven. And can you imagine looking back a hundred years from now when we'll all be there? And a lot of the stuff that created us heartache and headache and ulcers and sleepless nights, we will, I don't even know if we'll remember it, but if we do, we will smile. And there will not be any burden with it. And of course, today we're going to talk about burdens. So Paul says that love for your spiritual family and love for God results in caring involvement. And that can include restoration as well. So if we unpack verse 1, he says, even if one is caught in a sin. That is not to shock us because no one is immune from being surprised by sin. No one is invulnerable to being surprised by sin. And he uses the word, even if one is caught, the Greek there is overtaken. And it literally can mean several things. It can mean caught red-handed. In other words, you were caught in the very act of sinning. I don't think that's what it really means. It more likely means caught from behind. It has the implication of being ambushed or being surprised, like a hidden predator attacks their prey from undercover. It can mean snared by a concealed trap like a fish that swims into a net that they didn't see. So it really has the impact of being surprised by sin. This was not a premeditated sin. The word is trespass. And the word trespass is not premeditated. Anytime you read scripture and it says somebody was caught in a trespass, it's not premeditated. It's not habitual. It's not practiced sin. It literally means a stumbling a stumbling aside or a false step. I slipped, right? It has the connotation of a slip-up, not somebody who intentionally premeditated was planning on sinning. So this is a brother or sister that was ambushed by Satan and taken by surprise. It's still a sin, but a trespass is significantly different than an iniquity, which is a habitual practice uh, way of life of sin. And Paul says, if anyone is caught in a trespass, ambushed by surprise, and he says, any trespass. But the truth of it is, any one of us can sin at any time. And if you say you can't, you are about ready to get surprised. You are being set up for an ambush. Virtually all of us, if we're honest, at some point in time have been surprised by sin. We didn't see it coming. We woke up or we did whatever we did and the Holy Spirit said that was a sin. And we're going, huh? I didn't see that. I wasn't looking for it. It overtook me. It surprised me. It ambushed me. James 3, 2 said, for we all stumble in many ways. How true. Seemingly out of nowhere, you know, a temptation ambushes and we find ourselves caught in the spider web of sin. And of course, that should not surprise us. Paul has just told the Galatian believers that they have an old sin nature that they got from Adam and Eve, and they inherited that, and that's called the flesh. And an old sin nature called the flesh is at war with the new sin nature you got at the moment of salvation. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. So your old sin nature that you inherited from Adam is sinful, and it wants to sin. And your new sin nature you inherited from Jesus Christ at the moment of salvation with the Holy Spirit living inside you wants to do what is good. And so there is a civil war inside us 24-7. The old sin nature, by the way, never sleeps, never takes a break, never takes a vacation. It is relentless. When Brad wakes up in the morning, if I don't take control of my mind immediately and submit it to Jesus Christ, what's the default tendency if you just let your mind wander? 
it will probably wander to the old sin nature. It will probably not automatically wander to the new nature. That's why Romans 8 says, you know, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You need to take control of your mind. So how do we win that war with the old nature and not get ambushed by sin? As a Christian, all of us have the Holy Spirit, which means you have the supernatural power right now to say no to sin and win that battle. When we fall into sin as Christians, it's because we fail to depend on the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit to conquer that old sin nature. When we depend upon our own sin nature to defeat our own sin nature, how does that work? It doesn't. Sin can never defeat sin. If I'm going to try and defeat my old sin nature with the power of my old sin nature, I'm going to fail routinely. So I must depend upon the power of the Holy Spirit or else it's like trying to put out a fire by pouring gasoline on it. So in myself alone, without the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, sin will reliably overpower me. And this warfare with sin, with the flesh, if you will, takes place both on the outside and on the inside. And on the outside, we have Satan, who is the deceiver. How many of you know who he is? <clears throat> How many of you run into him this morning? You have, if you were not aware of it, you were surprised. Be aware that Satan prowls around 24-7. Satan is the master deceiver because he always conceals the consequences of sin. Satan will always focus you on the pleasures of the present, not the pain of the future. Sin always brings future pain and present pleasure, and as we know, Satan reliably will focus us on that because we all have blind spots where Satan can ambush us with temptation. We all have blind spots. Scripture compares Satan to a hungry lion seeking to kill and consume prey. 1 Peter 5.8, you know that. I want you to underline this in your Bible, the very first word. Your adversary. You and I have a personal enemy. You are on his hit list. He has a target on your chest and he has a 24 by 7 plan to trap you, to surprise you, to ambush you in sin. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to hug before he eats you, to devour. So we have an external enemy who's trying to surprise us and trap us in temptation and sin, but sin goes far deeper than just this external temptation. Satan ambushes on the outside, and we have our own sinful nature and our own desires to entice us on the inside. James 1.14. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. This is the old man. This is the old sin nature. This is the flesh, as Paul said. Verse 15. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Paul is giving you the, James is giving you the progression of where it goes. Lust leads to sin, leads to death, separation from God. So Satan is always going to set traps for us on the outside, and he's going to set traps for us on the outside where he knows we're the most vulnerable on the inside, because he studies you. He knows you better than you know yourself. Now, not to worry, you have the Holy Spirit. And 1 John says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So we do not need to fear him. But Paul says, don't be ignorant of his schemes. Be aware of his schemes. In general, we're the most vulnerable where we think we're invincible because we don't see the danger. Those areas are known as blind spots. Now, I think most of you probably came here in a car today, on automobile. Many automobiles have blind spots. A blind spot in the car is when you're in the driver's seat, and you're looking through the mirrors, and you're looking out the front, and there are places you cannot see in the car. You cannot see certain areas. And some cars, some automobiles, have really, really a lot of blind spots, depending on the cladding and the paneling and how the cabin is designed. So... Many, many accidents occur because of blind spots, and automobile manufacturers try and mitigate that. They put cameras on cars, and 
they put warning signs, you know, when you're crossing lanes and someone's in the lane, you get a red light or my seat vibrates. So I do it all the time because I like the vibration. Let's just cross the lane, you know. Yeah, no problem, you know. Leads to accidents. <clears throat> Marin says I got to stop it. I'll be fine. So we try and mitigate those blind spots by mechanical assistance. However, if you want to stay safe and you're driving, there is really no substitute for staying alert and paying attention all the time. Jesus commands us the same thing about spiritual alertness, Matthew 26, 41. Keep watching and praying so that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And Jesus spoke this to Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane because he was ready to go to his death on their behalf and they were sleeping. And we have all done that, have we not? God has something he wants to say to us, but we're taking a nod or whatever it happens to be. So by the way, this promise of Jesus is not a promise that you won't be tempted. Is that what it says? It says, no, it's a promise that you won't fall into or give into temptation. You will always be tempted in this life. Satan was constantly tempting Jesus to sin. We should not be surprised that we will be tempted to sin. Right? If we're like the servant, the servant will be not above the master. So Jesus' solution for this external temptation is constant awareness and constant prayer. Pastor Roger was talking about prayer this morning. How many of you find that prayer, if you're serious about it, is very, very hard work? It's extremely hard work. Um, I have spiritual ADD. When I pray, my mind can wander instantly to whatever it happens to be. And I'm, I'm convinced that that is part of temptation. That Satan brings things or puts stuff in my brain or the phone rings or the dog does blah, blah, blah. Anything to distract me from communion with my Heavenly Father because that's where the power is. And so he wants to cut that communication line and isolate you. So I think most of us probably have spiritual ADD. That's why I've said for some time, one of the things that I think is useful is praying out loud. Because when your mind wanders, your tongue stops and you go, well, where was I? Well, you were in the middle of a conversation with God, so where was that? Come back. When you get broken, when, you're, when your attention span gets broken, come back. It requires discipline. It requires effort. See, when you're in constant communication with God, the Holy Spirit gives you discernment to understand the temptation and see it coming. Oh, there's a lion behind that shrub. Okay. Number two, he gives you the strength to overcome the temptation. That's why this communication that's watching and praying and staying submissive to the Lord is so powerful. By the way, one of the other solutions for blind spots, which we all have, you know one of the best solutions you have for blind spots? You're sitting next to them. It's your brothers and sisters in Christ. Your family, your spiritual family is incredibly important in helping us uncover our blind spots because they see stuff you and I do not see. They see stuff we would rather them not see. Most of us are pretty confident that our own perspective is correct. How many of you like your own opinion? <laughs> of course. You tell everybody whether they want to know it or not, right? Matter of fact, we all do. We're pretty convinced, by and large, that our opinion is the accurate one. As a matter of fact, and I am guilty of this, I'll put myself at the head of the line. We believe that if we don't see it, it doesn't exist. If I don't perceive it, it's not real. If someone sees something that we don't see, do we automatically say, you know, I'm going to trust your opinion? even though I don't see it. No, we say, I think you're blind man. I think my, my opinion's pretty accurate here. I'm not sure I agree with your opinion of that. Proverbs says, in a multitude of counselors, there is victory. Now, a multitude of godly counselors is only useful if, number one, you listen to what they say, and number two, if you actually implement their godly counsel. Your spiritual family 
is your number one source of godly counsel after the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. On a human level, and this will include, for those of you that happen to be married, your spouse. Your spouse sees things about you that you don't want to know. And I speak autobiographically there because Marin knows me in some cases better than myself. So when God speaks to you, not only through his word, not only through his spirit, but through a family member, understand that he's trying to protect you. That's why going into battle for our Marines is never done one-on-one. -on -one. We go as a group. We go as a company. Well, we're in warfare here, so we go together as a spiritual family. However, the very best way to protect yourself from being blindsided by sin is to immerse your mind in God's Word. Psalm 119 verse 9 says, How can a young man, that's generic, how can a young person or an old person like us keep their way pure by keeping it according to your word? Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Now the word treasure is hidden. It's memorize, it's meditate, it's read, it's study like Pastor Brian talked about last week. So we're to saturate our mind with God's Word. The Word of God is the best immunization against the ambushes of sin. Now, those are preventative measures that you and I can do so we don't get ambushed by sin, so we're not surprised or caught in the trespass. However, when someone is ambushed by sin, Paul commands restoration. He says, you who are spiritual... You who are walking with the Spirit, you who are filled with the Spirit, you who have the fruit of the Spirit, you are responsible to initiate restoration. When a brother or sister has fallen into sin, the brother or sister caught in the trespass is not responsible to initiate the restoration. The Holy Spirit talks to them, obviously we hope they will. But the body of Christ, the mature believers are responsible to do that. And by the way, not restoring a fallen brother or sister is not an option. Do you think sin occurs in the body of Christ on a daily basis? Do you think so? I, I'm looking at you. I know it does, right? <laughs> I look in the mirror and I know it does. Therefore, remedial restoration should be going on in the body of Christ every day as well. Consider the human body. This morning, you have already been subjected to germ warfare. Your body is attacked by germs and infectious diseases 24 by 7. However, the human body, the human immune system, produces white blood cells. And those white blood cells do battle with and they destroy, they try to destroy infectious diseases, foreign invaders, etc. So there's a continual process of purification and biological warfare going on in your body to keep you healthy. The body is continually in the process of restoring, and Megan's nodding over there, the battle that occurs because of foreign invaders and infectious diseases. If that stops, the body will die. If your immune system shuts down, the germ warfare will take you away. Now, that restoration should be happening in the body of Christ. Exactly the same way as happens physical body. It should be happening 24 by 7. Those who are filled with the Spirit trusting in the, uh, should be talking to those who are trusting in the flesh and exhorting them to walk by the Spirit. So every Sunday... We come to hear the Word of God preached. Because during the course of the week, all of us drift away. All of us, at some point this week, trusted in our own strength. All of us, sometime this week, tolerated sin of one kind or another. All of us this week perhaps sinned and we didn't even know it. So when we come to God's house and we hear God's Word... The Word of God brings conviction and shines a light on our ambush that we got ambushed by sin. When we hang out with God's people and we're encouraged and exhorted by God's people, we are called to stop trusting in ourselves and continue to trust in the Holy Spirit alone. You know, God's people are often called the body of Christ in the New Testament. That's one of the terms. We're the family of God. We're the temple. We're the house. But... The body of Christ is a, is a phrase that is used to describe God's people, God's family. And some people in, in God's family and Christ's body are, are likened to his feet. 
they do the walking. Some people in Christ's family are his arms, his legs, his eyes, his ears. Paul describes the, the family of God being like the body of Christ, and we all have a function and a role. Well, when somebody falls into sin, gets surprised by sin, gets ambushed by sin, it's like Christ's body has a broken arm. And that arm needs to be set and healed so that it will be restored to full usefulness. And Christ's body suffers until that restoration takes place. Now, if you have a broken bone, you don't want just anybody trying to set it, like your neighbor. Uh, not even your best friend. Maybe especially not your spouse, who's supposed to love you dearly. You want someone to restore and set that broken arm who has skill, right? Hopefully knows what they're doing. And you want someone who is gentle, so they don't cause you more pain in the process of healing than what you've already experienced with a broken limb. The body of Christ needs restoration, and it needs God's people to be involved in that restoring process. And restore, of course, means to bring back to its former condition. The word restore here in the Greek, it literally means to mend, mend or repair. And there's four different word pictures. It means to mend or repair as in setting a broken bone. The bone is broken, you're going to restore it, which means you're going to mend it. You're going to heal it, you're going to repair it. It means repairing a dislocated limb. Something's out of joint and you put it back into joint. It means to mend a torn fishing net that has holes in it. You're going to mend that net, right? Or it means reprovisioning an army, an army that's starving. You're going to bring them food and supplies. So it's reprovisioning. So that's the kind of the word pictures of restore. And the goal of restoration is not to punish. It's to restore the sinning family member to their former position of fellowship. So when we sin, we get out of fellowship, right? We got a fellowship with God, number one, and we got a fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ, number two, because sin always divides. Sin always separates. So we want to restore our family member to fellowship with God and then their family of faith. If you see somebody who's got ambushed by sin, they may not even recognize it. They may not even know they have a problem. They need restoration whether they understand it or not. Matthew 18 gives us the pattern for restoration. Jesus says, if a brother or sister sins, this is in Matthew 18, 15 to 20, go to your brother or sister in private one-to-one. -one. So how do you do this restoration process? Well, number one, if a brother or sister sins and you're aware of it, go to them in private one-to-one -one and seek to reconcile their relationship with God. Your goal is to reconcile their relationship with God through repentance and confession. You want to help them see their sin as sin. Which means you better be convinced that it really is sin and not just something you wouldn't do. Just because you wouldn't do it doesn't mean it's sin. If it violates the word of God, then it's sin. Then they're, they're broken. Then they're separated and they need to be reconciled. They need to be restored. You need to encourage them to understand that 1 John 1, 9 still works. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, when you go to a brother who has sinned and you're seeking to restore them, it does not mean you tell two or three friends so they can pray about it. Right? Gossip concealed as a prayer request is still gossip. And it's still a sin. Jesus said, you go to them, just you and them, one-to-one. -one. At that point in time, only three people know that they've sinned. You, them, and Jesus. Friends, most sinners will not survive the gossip of the saints. They will not survive it. It will kill them. If I fall into sin and I believe that you will talk about me behind my back and shame me, my solution is simple. I just won't ever come back into your fellowship. It'll be real easy. I'm not restored then. I'm separated from the body of Christ and separated from God. Ideally, no one knows that this brother or sister has sinned except you and them and God. 
because you are your brother's keeper. You cannot observe sin and pretend that it doesn't exist and be your brother's keeper. If you see your brother or sister fall into sin and do nothing, it's like you who can swim refusing to rescue a drowning person who cannot sin because you don't want to get your clothes wet. Really? We are family. And family does not let family get separated or fall into sin and lose fellowship with Jesus and with each other. Jesus says, step two, if they listen to you, you've restored your brother, your sister. Praise God. They're reconciled with Jesus. They're reconciled with you. Wonderful. But if they refuse to listen to you, then take one or two witnesses. And these two or three witnesses need to be mature believers, obviously. And they will confirm everything. And when you have a couple of godly witnesses, they provide additional reality check for the, for the family member that is out of fellowship. And step three, if they still are unwilling to repent, then you remove them from fellowship. And that's a last resort only for anyone who loves their sin more than they love Jesus and refuse to give it up. Paul says we have an obligation to restore family. How you restore that family is crucial. And he says those who are mature are responsible. Those who are walking with the Spirit are responsible. And they are to exhibit a spirit of gentleness and humility. And the word gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit, right? So it's an evidence that the Holy Spirit lives in you. Another word for gentleness here is meekness. And meekness is power married to kindness. Power married to kindness. It means a tender consideration for the needs of others. This is a care and concern for the well-being of a family member in the same way that a mother is very gentle with her newborn. It's the opposite of being judgmental and self-righteous. By the way, have you noticed that those who judge others are seldom gentle? Seldom. The self-righteous are generally filled with pride and they see themselves as superior to everyone else. And those hurting over their sin and surprised by sin need gentleness and TLC, tender loving care, in order to heal. They need to know that Jesus loves them enough to forgive them just like he loved you and I enough to forgive us. Have you needed the forgiveness of Almighty God this morning? Of course. And therefore, when a brother or sister is in sinning, they need to sense and feel the love of Jesus through you. Paul says, by the way, don't get self-righteous because every one of us is vulnerable to sin in the same way that they did. He says, looking to yourself, and that really has to do with a continual, diligent observation. It says, pay attention to your own spiritual health. Know your own points of vulnerability. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, if you think you stand... Pay heed lest you fall. Proverbs, of course, says pride before goes a fall because none of us are immune to sin. When it comes to falling into sin, we all stand in slippery places. When it comes to falling into sin, we all stand in slippery places. We are all vulnerable. One of the most famous quotes relative to this came from a guy named John Bradford. He was an Englishman, as I recall, and he observed someone walking to their execution. Now, back in the day, they actually did public executions. I mean, they were public events. And this individual had done a heinous crime and was walking their own execution. And John Bradford said something that applies to every one of us. And his words were, there but for the grace of God go I. Because there is no sin that we could not commit under the right circumstances, without the Holy Spirit, we are vulnerable. So the only possible way to restore another in, is in a spirit of humility and moment-by-moment -moment dependence on the Holy Spirit for guidance and protection. So we're called to restore them, but we're also called to love them and support them after the restoration. Look at verse 2. Paul says, Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Here's the principle. We demonstrate the love of Jesus when we help others carry their burdens. We demonstrate the love of Jesus when we help others carry their burdens. And the word burdens here, literally in the Greek, it means an excessively heavy burden. 
This is not normal everyday responsibilities that each one is supposed to carry for themselves. These are unusually heavy burdens. Bearing one another's burdens doesn't mean that you do for somebody else what God has called them to do for themselves because that, of course, encourages irresponsibility. Bear here literally means to carry an extremely heavy load for a very long distance. And all of God's people have these burdens from time to time, and God did not design us to carry them alone. He designed us to help each other carry them. Now, there are some burdens we have just because we have responsibilities. So how do we deal with these burdens that we have, especially the excessively heavy ones, but in fact, all of them? Well, 1 Peter 5, 7 says, bring them to God. Casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. And by the way, that's not a suggestion. That's a command. You who are burdened, which is 100% of us, you bring those burdens to me, to God. And it's a present, continuous sense. You continuously bring those burdens to me. You continuously cast those burdens, not just once, multiple times a day. In Brad's case, sometimes multiple times an hour. And casting literally means to roll the weight from your back to someone else. So it's a continually surrendering the anxieties and the worries of, of your burdens to him. The story is told of a poor man who was walking back to his village many, many miles away, and he carried many, many heavy burdens and bundles on his back as he walked back to his village. A rich man in a horse-drawn wagon came by and offered him a ride, and the poor man gratefully accepted. The rich man noticed that even though the poor man sat in the wagon, the poor man did not remove the heavy burden from his back and put it on the floor of the wagon. When he asked why, the poor man replied, You have been gracious in offering me a ride, and I do not wish to take advantage of you by weighing down your wagon with my burdens. We do that with God, don't we? When God gives you heavy responsibilities and burdens, He also gives you the wagon to carry them in. God, by the way, doesn't promise that He's going to take away your responsibilities. However, because He loves us, He will carry the cares and those anxieties and the burden of those responsibilities. Have you ever noticed that our worries and our cares are kind of like backpacks with magnets? And they just keep jumping back on your back, right? You take off the backpack with the burden, you put it on God's wagon, and you cast it to the Lord, and you surrender to the Lord, and you say, Lord, I'm giving you this burden. And you do that at 2 o'clock in the morning when you can't sleep, and at 2.05, it's back on your back, and you're going, oh, man, what am I going to do with this? How am I going to fix that? You know, what am I going to do tomorrow morning? What am I going to say to that person? How am I going to fix this? They have magnets, and they keep jumping on your back. Through prayer, we need to take off that backpack and put it on God's wagon and let Him carry it. That's, that's how we bring Him to the Lord. Second thing we do is God designed His family to help each other carry burdens. The first commandment is, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second commandment is, Love your neighbor as yourself. So loving each other is not an option. For those who follow Jesus, it's a command. Matter of fact, in John 13, 34, Jesus said to his disciples, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. That's sacrificial love. One of the ways we express the love, the fruit of the Spirit, is by bearing each other's burdens. That means you get under the load with them and help them carry it. And that's inconvenient for us selfish people. Because we don't want to carry their burdens because we have got more than we can carry ourselves. So we say, how does this work? Loads are always easier to carry if you know you're not carrying it alone. The more alone we become, the more vulnerable to temptation we become. Satan loves to isolate us, doesn't he? He loves to get us alone. Satan and his demons are like a pack of wolves that chase a herd 
and then want to cut an individual out from the herd so they can run it down and devour it? The truth of it is, we should always be asking God to show us someone we can help by lightening their load. Because God's people do life together. We're designed to do life together. Let's get very practical. Sometimes burden-bearing just means escuche. Listening as a family member unloads whatever is weighing them down. Have you ever just needed to talk it out? You ever just needed a friend, you need to talk about it? Kind of get some perspective? You don't even want them to tell you what to do. You just want them to listen. Husbands, when she says, blah, 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 I've got an issue, a problem, she's not asking for a solution. She wants you to listen. She'll tell you if she wants a solution. She knows we're fix-its. We want to fix it. We want to fix it. We want to fix it. We want to fix it before we understand what the problem is. Listen is part of burden bearing. Sometimes burden bearing gets physically means gets physically involved. I mean that can involve babysitting, help someone move, put a budget together, and then of course our case, driving someone to a medical appointment. Yeah? Being with them in the doctor's office, taking notes because they may not remember what the doctor said, especially on medication. Sometimes burden bearing is a phone call. Sometimes burden bearing is a note. Carolyn Stout is a world-class hero of mine. She sends notes. That's burden-bearing. Sometimes it's coffee. Sometimes it's fellowship. Sometimes burden-bearing is truth-telling. Sometimes burden-bearing is telling people what God has to say about that particular situation. That's helping them bear the burden because you're bringing God into the situation. Sometimes burden-bearing is holding account somebody accountable for what they have committed to do. That's helping them bear the burden of that temptation that's weighing them down. You come alongside. You can be the splint for their broken arm. Accountability is a way to do that. One of the best ways you can help someone carry a heavy load is to pray for them and pray with them regularly. When we do prayer and praises here in our Mana family on Sunday mornings, we promise to pray for our family members with burdens during the coming weeks. And those are everything. If I asked you what the burdens in your life are, we could talk for days. I mean, it's the stresses of life. It's the disappointments of life. It's the expectations that got shattered. It's the illnesses. It's the friendships or the loss of them. It's the accidents. It's the child raising. It's the grandchild raising. It's the children are not doing a good job raising the children, so you get to do it. You know, it's the finances, it's the broken relationships, it's the marriages, and so on and so on. These are all burdens. And some of our burdens are so heavy that you know what we do? We just write unspoken. We don't even know what to pray for. Have you ever run into a burden in your own life or in someone's life that you love that you didn't even know what to ask for? You have someone that's so sick, you don't know whether to pray God heal them or heal them by taking them home. You don't know. But the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And that's when there are many, many times I say, Lord, you know. You know. And that's when you do what Jesus did in the garden. Thy will be done. You just, thy will be done when you don't know what to pray for. And when you pray for these petitions, when you pray for people, when you pray with them, you are literally bearing their burden because you're bringing the power of Almighty God to bear on their problem. That's probably one of the most profound ways you can bear someone's burden. When you pray with and for someone, you're literally rolling those burdens over to God and loving each other like Jesus commanded. Verse 3. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not regard to another. Verse 5, for each one will bear his own load. Here's the principle. Do help others, but don't compare yourself with others, because God will judge each one individually. 
So in God's family, helping is non-optional. Paul says in any family fellowship, there's going to be some people that think they're really something. I mean, they have an exalted opinion of themselves, and, and, and they think everyone else is really nothing compared to them. They are above helping people in need. They have grown beyond helping those hurting, weak sinners. Paul says, your pride has deceived you. In reality, they are nothing special. No one in God's family has any higher rank than any other family member. We are family, children of Almighty God through the blood of Jesus Christ. In Christ, we are all one and we are all commanded to help one another, not to compare ourselves with others. Each one of us is also commanded to examine their own work. Examine means to approve something after you test it. We have test pilots that take airplanes through the sky. Doug Unruh can tell you all about this. And they do stuff in an airplane that you do not want to be on board when they do, or it'll be a weight loss program. I mean, they put the planes through stresses, enormous stresses. And when that plane lands, it's been tested and proven because it's been examined by way of trial, intense trial. Paul says, you examine yourself. Make sure your relationship with God is healthy before you offer spiritual help to others in need. Because each one of us is, is accountable to God for the work that God's called us to do. I have a friend of mine, uh, acquaintance, who's not a Christian, and she told me 20 years ago, Brad, you just got to keep your own backyard clean. Make sure your own garden is weeded before you point out the weeds in your neighbor's garden. We've heard that people in glass houses don't, shouldn't throw stones. Here's an old saying, if it's not working for you, don't export it to somebody else. If it's not working for you, don't give advice on why they should adopt something that's not working for you because chances are it might not work for them either. So Paul says, look in the mirror, get your own life clean before the Lord, make sure you're accountable to God and doing what you need to do. You know, Madonna should probably not lecture on the virtues of life in a convent. I don't mean to point her out specifically, but your life needs to be congruent. Paul says, if you're going to be restoring somebody, understand that you're accountable to God first for your own life. Now, there's an apparent contradiction here because in verse 2, it says we're commanded to bear one another's burdens. And here in verse 5, it says we're to each to bear his own load. In verse 2, it says it's bear is present tense. So you help each other with the excessively heavy burdens in this life. And burdens is plural, multiple burdens in this life here and now. We are to help each other with those excessively heavy burdens. Verse 5 says each one's going to bear his own load. And that's future tense and singular. It means on the day of judgment, it's like a soldier's backpack. You're accountable for your own backpack. You're accountable for the work God gave you to do. You're going to be judged individually. Don't compare yourself with others because it's the wrong standard of measure. The only yardstick that we're going to be measured by is God's yardstick. So comparison is lethal. The reality is that each one of us have a job description from God himself, and we're accountable by God to complete our job description. So if you boast, Paul says, don't boast about what you've done, but boast about what the Lord has done for you and through you, because everything that we have is a gift from him. And if we compare ourselves with others, it either makes us arrogant or depressed, superior or inferior, neither one of which is accurate or true, Anytime we compare ourselves with others, you know the primary sin of that? It takes our eyes off of Jesus. And Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus. When we take our eyes off Jesus and we focus on each other, Satan always wants to isolate us from Jesus. When we take our eyes off Jesus, we're in trouble. So God wants each of us to be intimately connected with himself and intimately connected with each other. Since we will sin, we will be surprised by sin, we will be tempted, and we will fail from time to time, Paul commands a ministry of restoration, an ongoing restoration of the body where sin is dealt with and fellowship with God and fellowship with each other 
is reinstated and maintained by bearing one another's burdens. If you want a prayer this week for usefulness, ask God to show you someone that you can show the love of Jesus to by lightening their load and helping them bear those burdens. So let's summarize before Tom comes up and leads us in prayer and praise. Three points today. Number one, those walking by the Spirit should exhibit a spirit of gentleness and humility when restoring family members who have been ambushed by sin. Number two, we demonstrate the love of Jesus when we help others carry their burdens. That means get under the load with them and help them carry it. Number three, do help others, but don't compare yourself with others because God will judge each one of us individually. And so we need to make sure that our lives are right with the Lord before we begin to offer assistance to others. Next week, Lord willing, we'll start Genesis. So grab a quarterly Begin to study, read, look ahead. This has been a pretty theological uh, treatise we've been through. Uh, Genesis is going to be much more biographical. Uh, we're going to be talking more about uh, history, so you'll probably see more maps and more biography and more uh, lessons from the Scripture. So I love you, and now that you know... Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.